We are in the, uh, the third week of a series on James. Uh, if you don't know where that is, it's near the end of your Bible. Um, it's just a few back the other direction from the last book of the Bible, Revelation. You can flip back towards the beginning a little bit and you'll come across James. James is the brother of Jesus, the biological half-brother of Jesus, <clears throat> early leader in the church in Jerusalem, and he's writing to Jewish Christians around the Mediterranean world. Um, this is one of the, we think, the earliest letters of the New Testament. Um, James is, is writing before most of the other books of the New Testament have, have been written. Uh, and he's primarily, it seems, uh, using the, the language and the teachings of Jesus, especially in the Gospel of Matthew. He's borrowing from the book of Proverbs and so, uh, some intertestamental literature uh, called the book of Sirach, that's this Jewish wisdom literature. He's borrowing from all these sources and balling them up and, and teaching as a servant of Jesus who, who recognizes his brother that he grew up with as now the risen Lord of, the, of heaven and earth. And this section here uh, is, contains in it maybe the, the sort of thesis, the theme of the whole letter, this whole uh, sermon, if you will. So we're going to look at verse 19 through 27. Come across uh, 22 is, is maybe the thing that James would like you to hear more than anything else. So you should hear that multiple times as we carry on through this book. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, that person's religion is worthless, religion that is pure and undefiled before God. The Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the, word, from the world. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are the king over a people, that we are your people. God, we ask that our hearts would be submitted to your word, that we would see it, that we would see clearly, that we would remember, and that we would act. Jesus, help us to be not just hearers, but doers of the word. We cannot do this apart from the power of your Holy Spirit now and for all of our lives. We trust that you will complete this work in us, Lord Jesus. Amen. This phrase, be doers of the word and not hearers only, this is what the book of James is about. He's going to come at this idea from multiple directions. Do not just be hearers of the word, but be doers 
of the word. And here he's going to address a few different areas in which you are supposed to be doers and not just hearers. And these won't be the only area, uh, areas that he'll talk about. He's already mentioned one of them, although we skipped over that verse because we're going to come back to it when he comes back to this theme. But he's talking about the way that you talk. He is talking about your uh, moral life, moral purity, the way that you conduct yourself, and the, what you do for others. And these themes will come back again along with several others. And you'll hear James quite often be pretty blunt in saying what he means, and he means what he says. And it starts off in a way that I find very uncomfortable. I don't know if you're like me. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And by nature, I am the opposite of all of those. By nature, I am uh, slow to hear, quick to speak, quick to anger. You know, my, um, my dad is Cuban, and there are some stereotypes about Hispanics. They exist, uh, from my experience, for a reason. Um, we tend to be relatively hot-tempered. At least that's my whole family. I remember growing up and being in my dad's household, being in my grandparents, my great aunts and uncles, and there was just lots of yelling. Okay, that's, that's how we talk to each other. And it's loud, and there are hands flying, there is spit flying, and that's how we talk about breakfast, okay? That's, that's not even really being angry. And then when we're actually angry, it's just another level. That's, that's how I grew up, that's, that's my, my nature. I think it's relatively normal. And when outsiders come in and watch my family talk, they're just like, what, what is that? Like, who's gonna pull the weapon? What, who's gonna die here? Because my, in my family, uh, it's reaction. Hear and react. And we don't generally physically assault one another, but we are pretty verbally contentious. And everything in our, in our culture, in our world, actually is acting on us to be that way. Society is, is constructed and actively pushing you to be quick to anger, and quick to speak, and slow to hear. Our, our media, the way our media works, is the opposite of the way James instructs you to be. And there is for us there a warning. There should be for us a warning there that we cannot be, especially in our day and time, a people who give ourselves over to the formation of the world. Because the world is going to form you towards an end. The, wor the world is going to, to try to shape you and disciple you to be a kind of person that is quick to anger and quick to speak and slow to hear. And so me, as a person who by nature is already like that, has to be incredibly conscious that I don't live in a world that is neutral and saying, hey, you just sort of figure this out on your own. The way that we partake 
of the world is forming us and shaping us to be the opposite way that James is describing. And for James, this is not a minor point. This is a significant point. That you must be in control of your anger and in control of your mouth. He says here in 26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, the person's religion is worthless. There, there is no mitigation there. There is no compromise. There is no, well, everybody has flaws. It's just, if you cannot get a handle on how you talk, but you claim to be one of Jesus' people, then something is wrong. That religion that you are invested in, that's a worthless religion. If it can't act on your mouth and it can't form your tongue, that is not a religion that you should give yourself over to. And unfortunately, this is an area where the church at large fails. If you talk to people who are outside the church, don't want to come to church, don't want to be a part of the church, and they have personal experience with Christians generally and with churches specifically, eventually one of the first few things they'll say to you is, everybody talks about each other. Everybody knows your business and talks around each other and whispers to one another. We, unfortunately, as a people, have cultivated reputations not for being slow to speak, but for being quick to speak. And we can see by the impact that it has on non-Christians that James is, is right. Because people on the outside will put their finger on that thing and say, that religion is worthless. And I don't want to be a part of that. The way that you and I run our mouth in these days, the, that speech category is extended not to just verbal speech, but how you... Uh, say things with your thumbs into digital devices. That's speech as well. The way that you conduct speech should be under the rule and reign of Jesus. And if it's not, something is deeply wrong. The other thing that James will talk about He'll say, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. And James here is playing on a theme that many New Testament writers will play on. It's this idea within the language that you are clothed in your own moral life and it is dirty. The robe that you are wearing is filthy and you need to take it off. When it's saying put off, that's the image that he's calling. Take off that wickedness and put it aside forever. Put it away. And this is a challenge to us that we never really leave behind. Because in many ways, we conduct a large portion of our morality in secret. And for many of us, we feel like we can hold on to this private part of our lives 
And as long as nobody else sees, as long as we won't be shamed by other people, we can hold on to this robe. But James says it doesn't work that way. You can't keep part of the garment. Take off this filthy robe. And James has, this is the second time he's done this. He, he uses this language of immorality explicitly tinged with uh, vocabulary related to sexuality. Now, he's, he's not only talking to sexual ethics. He's using the language of sexual ethics to make a larger point. But often, what is the area of people's lives that is most hidden and clung to but their sexual life? I, I was teaching in my Old Testament class, and we're, we're finishing up the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and I'm trying to, in one class, cover Leviticus and talk to them about what are all these sacrifices for, and why do Christians feel like they can eat bacon cheeseburgers, and that's in the law, but then there's this other part of the law that says basically you can only sleep with your spouse who's of the opposite sex. And I'm, I'm talking to them about sexual ethics from the book of Leviticus, which we believe is binding for all of time and all people. And you can just feel the air go out of the room. It's just, ugh, let's not talk about this. I'd rather not. I, I think, speculatively, it's because it's because they know what I'm going to say. And I'm not there to, to club anybody. My job is to teach them what Leviticus says. That's my job. But it's inescapable, this view of human sexuality that the Bible teaches, that is so singular and exclusive that so many people want nothing to do with. And that includes church people, of course. People, people in churches don't like the extremely narrow view of sexuality that Scripture has. A man married to a woman, that's the arena for sexuality. Not pornography, not sleeping with somebody before, before marriage because you love each other and you consent to one another, not people of the same gender, none of it, any of that, just that narrow window. And unfortunately, People either want nothing to do with what Leviticus and Jesus and James are going to say, but they might come to church and hide away this piece of their, what they feel others would think is shameful or what they feel themselves is shameful. And they don't do this thing that James talks about. Take off this filthy robe and live a devoted life to Jesus. All the way down in secret and in public, take off the filthy rope. And the, and the last thing that James will say, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to, again, keep oneself unstained from the world. The language of religion, Christians try to swerve away from it, you, you heard this before around Christians. It's not a religion, it's a relationship. Have you heard that? 
That means not nothing to people who are not church people. Of course you're in a religion if you're a Christian. It's, the religion is Christianity. And we maybe can, I know what church people mean when they're saying that, but James feels comfortable with the word. I'm comfortable with the word. And James dials in what religion, how you know what true religion is. And what he doesn't list is an exhaustive knowledge test. He, he dials in his definition of religion in the verse before in the controlling of your tongue and in this verse, the care for orphans and widows. And in fact, the history of the church says this is actually what the church built its kind of marketing around unintentionally. The church was so defined by this thing, caring for orphans and widows, that it was visually distinct. Romans did not understand why Christian people would care for people who they literally didn't care if they died. They did not care if orphans died. They did not care if somebody didn't want a baby, took it into the wilderness and left it there to die by exposure or eaten by animals. They did not care. And Christians, the Christian church, profoundly cared. They cared about women who had lost their husband, who otherwise have no social place. And these people are pushed so far to the margins of society, the death rate was so high, and the early church was defined by this care for people like this. James says this is the mark of pure and undefiled religion. And notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say you care about them. It says you care for them. You can't just sit as a spectator and say, well, I care about that and think that that is enough. For James, the call is you go and care for them. We were um, with our small group leaders. We watched this, uh, this small sermon that a guy named Rufus gave at our General Assembly for our denomination this past summer. He's an African-American pastor in very large church in Memphis. It felt like it could fit all of Memphis inside of this church. And he was talking about uh, the Christian need to be like Jesus and show compassion. And what he said is, is compassion requires action. It's, it's sympathy with action. That's what compassion is. Compassion uh, without action is just sympathy. And sympathy is just being nice. And the Christian call is to compassion. And the, the kinds of people that James is talking about here are not just orphans and widows. So it certainly the, includes orphans and widows. But if, if you think that you can just take James's instructions here and say, well, if we're caring for orphans, we're caring for widows, because frankly, caring for widows feels easier in our time, 
because of things like life insurance and retirement funds and things like that. That's less on our minds, although there is still need for care for widows, especially who end up in nursing homes or have been cut off from social structures. But you can say, like, most widows are taken care of. Nobody's looking to kill widows. Um, Orphans in America, you know, you can think we're fine. You know, we're, we're good there, so I'm, James doesn't make me comfortable. This is cool. Orphans and widows, great. We're, we're on board. But the, the kind of people that he is talking about are classes of people that society thinks don't matter. And that is broader than just orphans and widows. And this is a, a command that can make you uncomfortable. And it should make you uncomfortable. Who are the classes of people in our valley that most of the culture is saying, or a significant portion of the culture is saying, we really don't care what happens to them? Those are the people that James is calling us to care for. The, the kind, the class, the individual of the people who culture, society, the powerful at large are saying we really don't care what happens to them. Those are the people that the church of Jesus Christ is called to with compassionate care. Active care. And look, you, you and I have the news, so we have access to all kinds of classes of people who fit in this kind of descriptor. So what you could be sitting there saying is like, how do I care for the world? I can't do that. Correct. That is true. And the expectation is not that you somehow figure out how to do the impossible. The expectation is that you don't do nothing and that you are responsible to do more than nothing. And, and I don't know what that looks like for you. Maybe you, you have a, a kid that you sponsor through compassion. And, and you stay on top of that and you do that faithfully. That's great. Maybe you need to go around the corner up to the Black Mountain Home for Children and give like two hours of your week a couple times a month and help some kids with their homework who are in the foster care system. Maybe you need to go to people who are your neighbor, literally, who are your neighbor, roughly, geographically, in the valley, and you need to extend the kind of care that Jesus says marks his people. He says, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me water. When I was in prison, you came and visited me. When I was naked, you clothed me. And I'll say this, if you literally have no idea where to do any of that, you are sitting in the place. You're sitting here in this middle school. This is the place. If you don't know where to do it, right here. Because I'm telling you, these people come here five days a week. They they don't have food when they leave here for the weekend. Did you know that? That happens. 
That's part of the calculus of how they close school for, for weather and stuff because they're thinking about kids who they know will not have food if they don't come to school. That is normal. That is not extraordinary. That is normal. If you don't know where to clothe naked people, we help run a, a closet here where kids who don't have clothes can come and get clothed. If you think these people are far away, they're in Zambia, they're at the, the bottom of South America somewhere, they're hiding in some jungle, they are not. And it is the call of people who wear Jesus' name, Christians, to represent that king to this world. And if your and my religion does not include a compulsion to go to the most vulnerable and to care for them, to be a voice for them, to stand up for them, James's diagnosis is pretty clear. Worthless. Worthless religion. He says, if, if you look into the law and and you don't let the law diagnose you and tell you something about yourself, you forget what it says. You're playing the wrong game. What he says instead is look at the law. Look at the word. And let it talk back to you. And tell you the kind of man, the kind of woman that you should be. It should slice you open and expose you and call you to a different kind of life. Because this is, man, Jesus, James's brother, this is the way he is. And it is, it is too easy to be this cultural Christian thing, to put the name of Jesus on a life of comfort and to think that it's okay. But if you read the Gospels, Jesus makes people profoundly uncomfortable. Both his enemies and his followers. To the extent that even his followers walk away, they can't handle what he's saying at various times. This is James talking about his brother and doing it well. Now, what can be confusing when you hear this word is, you put things in the wrong order. And you can feel weighted down by the weight of your shame and your wickedness, this clothes that you can't put off. And you think, in order to get right with Jesus, I got to be better. I, I got I to speak better. I got to be more moral. I got to do more works of charity. And when that happens, I can sort of pull my way down or up to where Jesus is. And that is not what James is saying. James is not saying the key for you to have, to obtain right relationship with God is to be this kind of person. That's the wrong end of things. What James is saying is because of what Jesus has done for you and the person that he has changed you to be. This is what you will look like. And the temptation is to flip that 
whenever you feel bad about yourself and to say, man, I just got to be better. When you fall short of this standard, neither James nor anyone else in Scripture is telling you the solution then, therefore, is be better. But the solution is always what it ever was. It's Jesus. What's happening is you're being exposed as a person who still needs King Jesus. He calls, he describes this kind of idea. When he says, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word. It's important there how he describes it. Because the word is not something you obtain. It's not something you earn. It is not something that comes from inside of you. Your inevitable moral compass to be a good and decent person. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about something that comes from outside of you and is put inside of you by someone else's power. Because here's the truth. You cannot be the kind of person that is described here, James says, without something coming from outside to rescue you. And there is no person that rightly represents this model of life with God except Jesus. Only Jesus is the one who fully controls his tongue and speaks a better word than speaking from his own self-righteousness, instead speaking of the righteousness of God. Only Jesus is the one from the outside to the inside is clothed in real and true righteousness which is authentic to himself. And it is the righteousness not generally that's out there as some other moral standard, but it is His own righteousness which the people of God are called to be clothed in. It's Jesus' righteousness, not yours. And you and I, we war against this, our own selfish interests all the time forgetting about the existence of orphans and widows, coming back and doing what we're supposed to, forgetting again, back and forth and back and forth. And only Jesus is the constant and consistent one who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead emptied himself and took on upon himself the form of a servant, as Paul says in Philippians 2. Jesus is the only one who fully embodies this real and true religion. What James is calling you to is to follow Jesus. Follow Him. Follow Him. He is better than you and me. He is kinder and gentler. He is appropriately angry at the things that deserve real and right anger. He cares for those who are in need and have no power, but instead leverages the power of God to care for them. Follow Jesus and be like Him.
He is a king that has made you not just to feel better when you lay down at night, but he is a king that is leading you towards a better life, a life that is like his. Jesus is way, way better than you and me, and he's beckoning you to follow him. He knows that you'll fail, that your understanding of religion is corrupted and corruptible, but he's always better than you. He's always been better than you. And he's still beckoning you. Follow me. Follow me and be like me. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that there is, there is hope for us, a fickle people. We, we hear who we are supposed to be. We hear that we are supposed to be a people who control our tongues and live purely and give ourselves over to care for the orphan, the widow, the most exposed and disadvantaged among us. And that call is real. It stands outside of us and calls us to repentance. And Father, I pray for all of us here that we would hear that word, that we would be truly sorry for the ways that we have worn your name and lived for ourselves. We are sorry for the reputation that has been assigned to your name, for being people who are self-interested and who run our mouths and do whatever we want towards our own end, all the while with your name on our sleeve. We are sorry, Lord Jesus. We have fallen short. And we know the truth, God. We know the truth that we cannot make that right by ourselves. We need you to keep healing us, to reform us, to shape us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Strip us of the delusion that if we work hard enough, we will be a good enough person for you. But instead, help us to live open-handedly and say, Jesus, please complete the work that you've begun in me. Help us, Lord Jesus, to hear your word and to do it. And to do it out of joy and freedom in response to what you've already done, which is now and forever more than enough. We trust that you'll do this to the praise of your name, Jesus. Amen.